Hi, my name is Ruth and I'm in my second year studying engineering and I'll be reading the Bible passage for today. Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will command you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow men has fulfilled the law. The commandments... Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Well, good afternoon. My name is Matt and I'm one of the staff workers at the CU and we've been working through the book of Romans. Uh, last week in chapter 12, what we saw was that the only right response to God's mercy is to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. This was our true and proper worship. And how we were to do that it was a live question for us, because it's easy to know how to sacrifice your body in death, but how do you do that in life? And so what we found out is that Paul devotes chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 to help us understand what that might look like in the various situations of life. Now today we're in chapters 13, um, and Paul introduces us to three more. And we're going to do something slightly different today. Rather than have one talk, we're going to have three mini-talks. One of each will be devoted to the three ways that this chapter tells us that we worship God. Sound good? Excellent. Well, let's get started. Here's our first one. Number one, we worship God by submitting to the government. Now, this is a very live issue in our current context. Uh, the coronavirus has led to our government exercising like a level of control over society that few of us have previously experienced. Now, on the whole, I think Australians have responded pretty well, but incidents like Bondi Beach over in the east where people flouted social distancing rules just to go for a surf, I think tells us something more accurate about the Australian mindset. 
You see, we only submit to authority so long as it's in our own interest. As soon as it's inconvenient, all bets are off. And that sort of attitude is actually woefully inadequate when it comes to worshipping God. In verse 1 of today's chapter, Paul gives us a very clear and very straightforward command. Open up your Bibles and have a look at what he says. He says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now when I read that, my alarm bells start to go off because I'm like, hang on a minute, is, is that all there is? Where's the rest of the command? Surely that, that, that can't be it. And here's what's confronting. The command isn't qualified. There's no be subject, but only if the government is doing a good job, or be subject unless you don't agree with a particular law or policy, in which case you could just ignore that bit. Uh, there are no qualifications in the entire passage. And I think that disturbs us. I think quite rightly. Because we start to think about Nazi Germany, or Islamic State, or Kim Jong-un's North Korea. And so what we do is we go hunting for the exception. But I want to shelve that for the moment, because frankly, we have one of the best governments in the world. Got to remember, Paul was writing this to the Romans who were living under the rule of Nero. Now Nero, he was an evil dictator. And do you know what he was famous for? Covering people in oil, setting fire to them, and using them to light his dinner parties. <laughs> we have Medicare. And so if Paul is going to tell Christians to submit in that regime, then we as Australian Christians have no excuse. There's no out clause for us. But God in his kindness, he still gives us a couple of reasons why we are to submit. Here's the first one in verses 1 to 2. Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now this isn't a new biblical idea. I'm, I'm thinking Pharaoh, I'm thinking Nebuchadnezzar, I'm thinking Pilate. All of them were given their authority by God, the Bible tells us. And what this means is that if tomorrow morning ScoMo woke up, sat at his desk and looked around and thought to himself, look how hard I worked to get where I am, he would be wrong. He is there at that desk because God put him there. And so if we refuse to subject ourselves to ScoMo and his government, then we are actually refusing to subject ourselves to God. And that is not worship. That is anti-worship. And I think that this is really important for us as Australians to grasp because we are a very egalitarian society and the only time that we let someone be over us is when we think they have earned it. Have they earned my respect? Are they good at their job? Because if they're not, then they are out. But the Bible tells us to respect the person and in fact, it tells us to respect the position irrespective of the person who's in it. Because it is God who put them there. That's our first reason. The second reason is in verses 3 to 4. This is what it says. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. And, and I think this is the key phrase. 
He is God's servant, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, the government, we see, is God's agent to make sure that society continues to function. That those who do good are honoured, but those who do evil, well, I make sure that they will be punished. And this is very significant for us, particularly for us as Christians, because cast your mind back to Romans 12 last week, and all of the different commands and injunctions Paul gave to us. Do you remember some of the ones that he told us? He told us not to avenge ourselves, because vengeance was the Lord's. He will repay. And so what we see in this passage is the government wields the sword, and it wields the sword because that is one of the means by which God does just that. He brings justice. And more than that, if you remember in verse 12, we were told not to overcome, not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil by good. And so the state, far from being our enemy, actually becomes an added incentive to live the way that God would have us live. And just in case you're wondering, our government does this, doesn't do it perfectly, but we can walk down the streets of Perth and feel safe. We have courts of appeal for when we suffer injustice, our legal system is robust, it's accountable. We have no reason to rebel, instead we are called to submit. So what does that look like? Well, verse 7 here tells us what it looks like. And it tells us it in terms of what we owe. It says this, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honour to whom honour is owed. Now, back in Sydney, I used to budget for parking fines. Now, I didn't set out to break the law, uh, but the parking signs in Newtown were just so confusing that I got fined at least once a year. Now, whenever that happened, I really got frustrated because I'm trying to obey the law. But did I feel hard done by? Well, maybe. But, but what does a Christian do in a circumstance like that? Well, they pay what they owe. They pay the fine. And, and here's the clincher. They delight to do it because in doing so, they are submitting to the government and worshipping God. You see, paying taxes is a good thing. If I get sick, I get worried about having the coronavirus, I can go to the nearest hospital and get tested because our taxes paid for that hospital. Praise God that we live under a government that is responsible and diligent and doing what it's supposed to be doing. But notice there in the verse that it's not just that we owe money, we owe respect and honour as well. And I think this is the one that really gets Australians because we'll pay taxes because we'll get in trouble. But when you see or write to your local member, how often do you thank them? More importantly, how do you talk about them with friends? Is it solely in negative terms? I saw one Christian on Facebook recently tell us that ScoMo was evil. And frankly, no matter how evil you think they are, no matter how correct you think you are, the life of a politician is not easy. I mean, you can see it. The moment they come into power, they visibly age. Skomo's probably lost 10 years of his life in the last three months because they take on a heavy burden on our behalf. And so respect is due to them, even if you disagree with them on certain, apologies, on certain policies. Because Christians, we pay what we owe. Now what about the exception? I know you're all itching for the exception, and I said before there was one, but I put it on the shelf. So what's the exception? Let's take it down and find out. 
The exception is actually quite simple. If and when the government asks us to do something that contradicts what God commands, what he commands us in the Bible, that's when we disobey. And while our society is moving in a direction where this will become more and more common, I want us to understand that even then that is actually very rare. And if and when it does happen, it's not like we just start smashing up tables and we kind of start an insurrection, you know, set things on fire and, you know, thumb out the nose up to the government. But what we do is we disobey respectfully. And importantly, we submit to the punishment that the government gives us. Whatever it is, we'll pay the fine, we'll do the time. Why? Because they are still our government. Still put there by God as God's servant. They will answer for the way they governed. They might not be doing a good job, but we, we will answer for the way that we submitted to them. Because one of the ways we worship God is by submitting to the government. Number two, we worship God by loving others. This means of worship is way less controversial than the previous one. I don't think you would find a single Australian who would disagree with the statement that we should love others. And yet despite its uncontroversial nature, this is actually the harder one to do. Uh, and the reason for that uh, is told to us in verse 8. Grab your Bibles again and have a look. This is what it says. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. You see, your debt to the government, you can pay off. But your debt to your fellow man is continuing. It never ends. It's sort of like your hex debt. You'll discover this as soon as you get out of uni. It is very likely that you will never be able to pay that thing off. And Paul here is not, he's not trying to discourage us, though. Uh, what he's trying to do is establish within us an attitude that says, I will keep giving and giving, and I will never stop. And I think that messes with our sinful hearts a bit, doesn't it? Because we largely think of love as transactional. If I do something loving toward you, then you do something loving toward me. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. Love is offered regardless of whether it's deserved, regardless of whether it's returned. I mean, that's what Christ did for us. He died for us while we were still sinners. And so to love as a Christian, as a Christian, means that we will never break even with someone. No matter how much love you've given someone, or, and here's the kicker, how little they've given back to you, you will always owe them more love. Now, Paul tells us the reason why we are to keep loving in the rest of verse 8. And he tells us that it's because the one who loves others has fulfilled the law. And what he means by that is that at the heart of every one of God's commandments is an underlying principle, the principle of loving one another. Have a look at verses 9 to 10. Let me read it out to you. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. This is verse 10. Love does not harm a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And so if you love others, you will be in obedience to all of God's commandments. 
Don't have to worry about adultery or murder or stealing or coveting or any other command. Because if you love people properly, then we will have obeyed them all. Now, having outlined that general principle that Paul gives us, I now want to outline two errors that people make when they try to put this principle into practice. Two errors. The first one is loving without laws. And the second is laws without love. So the first error. The first error is to take this new principle of love thy neighbour and then chuck out the Old Testament law. And the reasoning goes something like this. If my salvation is based on the mercy of God and not on my obedience to the law, correct so far, then I no longer need the law. The law sort of becomes to me like a DVD. I have nothing to play it on anymore. Uh, and even if I did, I wouldn't want to because I have Netflix now. DVD, it's obsolete. It's of no practical use. And so in this way of thinking, there is nothing in common with the Old Testament law and the command to love thy neighbour as thyself. They are two separate entities and they have nothing to do with one another. But let that sit in your mind for a moment. Can you see the problem with that way of thinking? All of a sudden, love is no longer defined by anything. Uh, and when you cut it free from its biblical moorings, it becomes vacuous and empty and adrift at sea. It can go anywhere. Love can now mean whatever you want it to mean. And by the way, this is why that, that motto, love equals love, is so stupid. Because if you exclude God's thoughts from the picture, then on what basis do you define what love is? I mean, what gives it its meaning, its substance, what curtails it, what gives it its boundaries? Nothing. It becomes subjective. It becomes whatever society wants it to mean. And I'm just going to be blunt here. Our society has completely butchered what it means to be loving. They have taken that phrase at the beginning of verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbour, and they've twisted it to say that as long as I'm not hurting anyone... I can do what I want. But that's not selfless love. That's self-entitlement. And it is amazing how far some people will take this. Someone will say that having an affair is okay, so long as their spouse doesn't find out, I'm just letting off steam. What they don't know can't hurt them. It's not hurting them, so long as they don't know. But, but that's not an act of love. That's selfishness dressed up in the guise of love. It shows no regard for the person that you're married to. And so when our definition of love becomes based on us, it becomes self-serving. And the only way that we avoid this is if we base our definition and understanding of love on what God says. And he first reveals himself and his moral standard in the Old Testament law. And what the law does is it fills the content of what love is. And so it can't be ignored. You cannot love apart from a knowledge of the law. And so that's the first error, love without law. The second error is to actually do the opposite of the first. You keep the law, but you forget to love. Now the type of person who, who does this, um, who makes this error, is so intent on making sure that all of the individual commands are obeyed. No adultery, check. No murder, check. Uh, but, but they forget the wider reality 
that the laws point to. Now, you might have heard of this error. It's called legalism. Uh, when Paul says to us that love sums up every commandment, he's not just saying that love of one's neighbour kind of sits at the heart of each individual command. What he's saying is that the ethic of love, it subsumes and, and fills out and perfects what the law was always driving at. The law is the blueprint, whereas love is the whole house, complete with the family, kids and furniture. Uh, because that's the problem with the law, right? By its nature, it only ever asks, what do I have to do? What's the lowest bar that I need to jump over to be good? But love doesn't stop at the minimum requirements. It doesn't ask, what do I have to do? It asks, what else can I do? Now, as far as I'm aware, no one at the CU has ever murdered anyone. And I sincerely hope that, that nobody in the CU has ever committed adultery. But assuming those facts, that, that doesn't mean that we can conclude that the CU is a loving community. It's a scary thought, isn't it? And that's because the call of love goes further and deeper. Remember, it is a debt that is never paid off. So the warning for us is don't assume that you're a loving person or that you've done enough simply because you've obeyed the broad strokes of the law. There is work to be done. There is debt to be paid. You see, right now, the Christian Union, we are scattered across hundreds of houses. People are isolated. People are alone. And the longer these restrictions stay in place, the harder it's going to get for people. Um, our numbers at public meeting, our numbers at small group have plummeted. Now, we don't care about the numbers, but what we care about is the people that those numbers represent, the people that we could be reaching or encouraging and upholding in their faith with the gospel that we preach at these places. And the, the sad reality is the staff can't contact them all. And even if we could, we wouldn't because this is your ministry. And so maybe that's something that you could do while you're in isolation. <clears throat> who do you know who's gone AWOL from your small group, who you could reach out to and care for and love? Because there is work to be done here. And so we need to ask ourselves the second question of worship, which is where am I not paying my debt of love? Because to keep paying is the second way that we worship God. Number three, we worship God by living in the light of the day. When we get to verse 11, we see another shift in Paul's argument. We've seen what it looks like to worship politically. We've then seen what it looks like to worship relationally. And now he turns his attention to what it looks like to worship in light of our place in history. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, we'll have a look in your Bibles at verse 11. This is how he begins. He says, and do this, understanding the present time. And so we've got to understand the time that we live in because that will influence how we live. Uh, that makes sense, right? You don't play laser tag at a funeral. Um, this is not a new concept for us because the time determines the behavior. Uh, so, for example, my wife has helped me understand in recent time uh, that as we do ministry from our home in isolation, now is the time for my inside voice. Now, I had no idea I had an inside voice, but there you go. The time determines the behavior. Uh, so what's the time that Paul is talking about? Well, keep reading. This is what he says again in verse 11. The hour has already come 
for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So, I think this is helpful. Paul isn't talking about world history at this point. He's actually talking about salvation history. And this is going to help us locate what the present time actually is. Don't panic when you read this, by the way, and it says, you know, like, oh, salvation is getting nearer to you as if you haven't been saved yet. We have been. Remember, the Bible can talk about salvation from the point of view of having been, being, and will be. Uh, and this is really Romans chapter 5 all over again. We have been justified before the judge. And now we await our final salvation when, at the return of Jesus, the world is judged and we are brought into God's new creation finally and completely saved. And so even though in one sense what Paul says is really sort of obvious, I mean, of course our salvation is closer than when we first believed. I mean, it's been a bit longer since we first believed. Um, it's not as if Jesus is there kind of shifting back the deadline as time moves on. Uh, but even though in one sense it's obvious, there's a certain sense of urgency in this particular verse that should arrest our attention. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. The times have changed. It's past time to wake up. Your alarm went off 30 minutes ago. Now is not the time to keep hitting the snooze button. Now is the time to leap out of bed and get into the day. Now, if you continue reading in verse 12, you actually see Paul continuing to expand on this metaphor of the morning. And we start to get a sense of what I meant earlier when I said at the very beginning that we worship God by living in the light of the day. Uh, look at what he says. The night is nearly over and the day is almost here. And what he's doing when he says this is he is locating us in the present time. The night is about to turn to day, and so we are in the last period of the night where the sun is about to crest the horizon, but it hasn't quite gotten there yet. And so we are in the darkest and the coldest period of the night, the time where we are most likely to think that the dawn is furthest away. And Paul wants to say to us that this moment, at this very moment, this is the moment before everything changes, and the world that is covered in darkness, it will suddenly be basked in the glorious light of the Lord Jesus. And he says to us, know the time in which you live. It is almost the dawning of the day. Because if you're a Christian, you are not in the night time. That's the world. The world, and this is really from John's Gospel, the world is in darkness. And it is doing despicable things under the cover of that darkness. But you... You, believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been taken out of that world to live in the light, to live in the light of the new world, the world that is to come. And that's why Paul says what he says in the rest of verse 12. So, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Things are starting to get pretty cool, aren't they? The metaphor has shifted slightly here. Uh, it's, it's not talking about waking up as the sun rises. It's now talking about getting dressed for the new day. And I think this merits some reflection for us uh, because this is one of those key metaphors that, that the Bible uses for Christian living. And I think the vast majority of us are typically sloppy dressers. Now I'm not talking about reality, we'll find out about that when we get back on campus. But you have no idea how much money that I would give right now to see the reverse camera and see what you're all wearing right now. 
And it's not because I'm creepy. I'm trying to prove a point here. We're what? We're around 1.30 in the afternoon. We're a good couple of months into isolation. How many of us got properly dressed for the new day today? Like, could you go out right now in what you're wearing? If it wasn't for these videos, I think I would have abandoned shirts weeks ago. <laughs> and now, now all my one-to-ones are kind of wondering, why does he only do voice calls? But I think there's more to this. Uh, there's a more important question than just what are you actually physically dressed in. Because really, you can do whatever you want in your own home. Um, you can walk around in boots, you can walk around without any pants, you can have bed hair, whatever it is. But, but how many of us woke up this morning and got dressed for the day that Paul says is about to dawn? Or are we still sleeping? I think for many of us, it's easy to get lulled back to sleep by the monotony of everyday life. And in those dark hours of the morning, just before the sun has risen, we convince ourselves that the sun is not about to rise, and therefore that there is no need to live in light of the day that is to come the one that it will irrevocably change everything. But Paul says, know the time in which you live and dress accordingly. Because in this day, there are no Ugg boots here. There are no onesies. There's no bed hair. Christians, we dress for the day. Now, what does that look like? Well, in verse 13, Paul gives us three examples, three pairs, carousing and drunkenness, Sexual immorality and debauchery, and dissension and jealousy. And the thing that I want you to notice in all of these things is that all of them are done under cover of darkness. They're done at night time. When do uni parties really start to get unhinged? It's not until it's way late. You never see a uni party in the daytime. If you saw a uni student drunk on the oak lawn at midday, people are going to assume that he has a problem. See, even non-Christians intuitively know that there are some things that are not decent for the daylight. Now, sexual morality and debauchery, it is never out in the open. It's always done behind a closed college door. Dissension and jealousy, that's never public. It's always behind people's backs. And what Paul tells us here is that these things are the opposite of living in the light. They are not becoming of Christians. They are about as out of place as somebody having sex on the side of a highway or walking, stumbling, drunk through a shopping centre at midday. But those things don't worship God. They do the opposite. They dishonour Him. So what are we to do? Well, Paul summarises for us the attitude that we are to have in verse 14. There's a lot of repetition in these last couple of verses. The same idea in just different words. And he says to us, In light of the day that is about to dawn, we are to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Because that is what worships God. There are two parts, the putting off and the putting on. And both are challenging because they require sustained mental effort and intentionality. And so my suggestion is not to try and tackle everything and just completely rip it off in one hit, but to tackle one thing at a time. One item of clothing. It might be something on Paul's list. It might not be. Maybe you have real trouble with alcohol and partying. That's the first one in his list in this chapter. But maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's something that he hasn't listed. I mean, the rest of the scripture, it will spell out for us the behaviours that constitute the desires of the flesh. But whatever it is, how are you going to put it off? 
And what of Jesus are you going to put on in its place? Because you need to do both. Now, you won't get it right every time. Some days you'll put your shirt on back to front. Other days you'll forget your pants. Uh, but, but what really matters in all of this is that day by day, you are getting dressed for the day. Because that is how you worship God. So, three ways to worship God today. We worship God by submitting to the government. We worship God by loving one another. And we worship God by living in light of the day. There are plenty more. We saw some last week. We'll see a whole bunch in the weeks to come. Uh, but there are three for you to think on. I'll catch you later.